This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. Now, that kind of talk this week dragged Australia's share market to a two-year low. There are, of course, complex reasons He was the big spender. The big spender. Doing the grocery shopping could take a huge chunk out of the family budget. And that's finance. Hello and welcome to another episode of Comedian vs. Economist. We demystify the world of money and help you get a handle on the bigger picture. My name's Adam and we're joined as always by my little older brother and real life economist, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. G'day, Adam. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing very well, thank you. Mm. Thomas, first things first, uh, I've been meaning to get to this for a while. I just want to give a big shout out to Jen. Jen is a avid listener of the show and an avid commenter on our Instagram page, at CVE Podcast. Tunes in every Wednesday and we really appreciate that. So hats off to you, Jen. I've been meaning to give you a shout out for a while. And today I'm doing it. So uh, thank you. It's people like you that make talking to my brother once a week worth it. Uh, (laughs) As always, big show coming up. Let's get into it. Interest rates are rising. What does that mean for households? Is it really time to sell the puppy you bought the kids for Christmas? Uh, Not to be outdone by the Liberals, Labor has released their housing scheme. Neither party seemed to notice that the word scheme makes them both sound pretty sinister. It's got to be said. Uh, I'd be more on board if it was called a housing game plan. Uh, <laughs> makes it sound a bit more exciting. Uh, we've got a couple of listener questions to finish with today as well. A couple of rippers too, I think, which, Thomas, you may struggle to answer. So Ooh. hang around. Uh, we might witness more stumpings than Adam Gilchrist. But first, <laughs> we mentioned it on the show last week. Mike Cannon-Brooks and his company Grok Ventures have bought a big chunk of AGL. Thomas, is he serious or is he just gaslighting? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that's funny because they're a coal retailer. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, <it's> funny. <laughs> they never work when you have to explain them these jokes, but it's funny because they're the, the Australian gaslighting company. That's how they started. Uh, oh. AGL stands for Australian Gaslighting. Oh, is that there you right? go. I yeah, didn't know that. There you go. There you go. That's why the joke is like it's it's funnier than you even thought it was. Wow. So yeah, yeah. We uh, hopefully we can tidy that up in post, and that'll come out with <laughs> the raucous laughter that it deserves. Uh, anyway, Thomas, what's going on? Yeah, we, need, we need a canned laughter track for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm trading you in for a laugh track. <laughs> Yeah, we we covered we covered this one a, a while ago. I don't know when when was that? Like start of the year, I think, where he was planning with Brookfield, mm. the fund manager, to to take over AGL. Wanted to buy it and take it on. Um, the board said no. So then he's come back and he's done a sneaky. So he's quietly built himself a stake of eleven point three percent of the company. Just quietly did that mm. in the background. 
and now says he's going to get in the way of um, the demerger plan. So the context here is AGL, AGL's board and management is putting something to the shareholders. They want to they want to split the the coffee generation, the power generation from the retail. So at the moment they're a gen tailor, they generate and they retail. Right. The retail is really successful. They have a massive customer base and it's super profitable and everyone thinks it's a great business. The generation is mm. coal, dirty coal fire and it's becoming a dinosaur and everyone thinks it's a liability. And so they want to they want to split off the dirty bit from the clean bit. That's yeah. we can sum it up. Yeah, 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 that's right. Right, that's right. So that sounds reasonable, though, doesn't it? Like, why is that a bad idea? Isn't that Mike Cannonbrook's argument is that if you do that, you create mm. a, a dead business, and that business just quickly becomes unprofitable and right. dies, and but it has these stranded assets, and will then try to bleed out as much longevity out of those coal-fired assets as possible just to keep itself ticking over. Right. Where his, his argument, if they stay integrated, then you've got all the cash flow of the retail arm mm. coming through and helping to fund the transition of those assets to other renewable assets. So right. the, the process of shutting down the coal-fired assets and create and coming up with new new assets is expensive and ACEL, the body that it's going to be, is not going to be able to do it. And so it's just going to have these stranded assets and it's just going to bleed the life out of these things for as long as possible. And that's a bad outcome. It's mm. a bad outcome because you create ACEL as a business is going to be a dog. and all that, So that's he's saying it's value destructive. So it's bad from the people who end up owning ACEL, which is the shareholders because they'll end up with both. It's also bad for the planet because you, you, you're prolonging the life of these mm. I heard some commentary saying, you know, this is just a bit of a, I don't know, a green hippie coming in mm-hmm. trying to change the world. But he, I read a quote that said from Mike Cannon-Brooks, he said, I have a big team working on this and have been for quite a while. It's not just me randomly buying shares on Comsec here. He said, he described the move as largely strategic. And it got me thinking, I, I don't even, like, I wonder if Comsec would take your trade if you tried to buy 11.3% of AGL, like what does that, what does that day look like? Can I, can I get 500 bucks of that specky lithium miner, $1,000 of end of NDQ ETF because I love tech uh, and maybe $650 million worth of AGL as well today, please. Yeah. Big purchase. He said he's romantically involved in the history of the company. So mm. since it lit the first streetlights in Sydney in 1841, Mm-hmm. He said he just he loves the he loves the history of it all. So that's one yeah, one of his yeah. reasons for trying to what he says. I think he's you know he's trying to save the company because um, mm. yeah, AGO accredited with with the first streetlight in eighteen forty one. They're also accredited with repairing the first streetlight uh, after a couple of ne'er do well and a few scallywags doth struck the streetlight with a stone <laughs> in eighteen forty two. But it's worth noting, I think, if, if, if history has taught us anything, it's worth noting that uh, AGL was formed in Sydney in 1837. I've done a bit of history here, Thomas. Mm. So they were formed in 1837 and they launched the very first streetlight in Sydney in 1841. So it took them four years to build one streetlight. <laughs> I don't know that we should be incredibly surprised <laughs> that it's going to take them a long time to decarbonise there. <laughs> <laughs> their uh, their their coal fired yeah. power station. 
the thing I love about this is he's done it sort of quietly built it up. So it's going to it's going to a vote. The the demerger has to be approved by shareholders. Hmm. It has to be approved by 75% of shareholders or more. So 75% is the hurdle. Right. So that's quite a high hurdle to begin with. To split the business up, they need to get 75% of shareholders on board. Yep. He's quietly gone and built up a stake of 11.3%, which Hmm. means that the board was saying like, oh, we've got – if we lose 25% of our shareholders, the, the proposal sunk. Suddenly Mike Cannon-Brooks comes out and says, I own t- almost 12%. So now, you, now the board's got like, he only needs to convince another 13% of right. the shareholders to join him and the deal sunk. Mm. So He, that, he launched mm. a website to do it too. He's got a new, yeah. is this slick as website, keep it together Australia campaign. Mm. But I went there and I'm like, I'm sold. I'm not even a shareholder and I want to demerge. Like, <laughs> you, know, you, you, want to, you don't want to demerge, yeah. I don't want, well, yeah, whatever he's doing, I'm on board. I'm on board. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, and the interesting thing about it is that because AGL with, with two coal-fired generators has, is seen as a bit of a dirty company, mm. all of your large super funds have, li- almost all of them have divested from AGL anyway so there's not a lot of institutional shareholders the only institutional shareholders that are in the mix are your index funds so your van Eck, blackrock state street oh, yeah. vanguard um and they're only earning because it's part of the the a200 or whatever their index is that that tax the share market so um, right so they have to be because it, it's included by way of a rule that says yeah. or a screen or whatever that says yeah we have yeah. to have the, the top 200 companies okay yeah yeah and then 50% of their shares are held by retail investors, by mum and dad investors. All right. So, so it's, quite, it's, quite a, it's quite a democratic shareholding in that, mm. in that sense. It's not, it's not large super funds because the super funds got out or fund managers and it's 50% by mum and dad. So, yeah, as you're saying, like Mike Cannonbrooks only has to convince – so that's why he's launching this campaign because he only needs to convince 12% of those mum and dad investors to join him and the deal's, the deal's toast. Their shares are down seventy percent in the last five years. Mm, so, mm. like that kind of environment, you'd be thinking there'd be a lot of people, I don't know, potentially looking to change or, mm. I don't know, looking for looking for some direction. And this guy, this guy might might have it. Yeah. Still, that's not bad. Seventy percent in five years. If you bought Kathy Wood's Ark ETF last this time last year, you'd be down seventy <laughs> percent. <70%. laughs> <laughs> All right, Thomas, last week we recorded on Monday and then Tuesday the RBA met and Phil Lowe, to the surprise of most people it would seem, decided that the RBA was going to raise rates by 25 basis points. Mm. We've had a week to digest it. What did you make of the, uh, what did you make of the decision? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. So we got, we got that 25 bips, which was a big flex from the RBA. Like I think it's an interesting move in the sense they got a lot of bang for their buck in their ability to, to, to shake the market with it. So no one was expecting 25 basis points. No. Most, most economists were expecting 15, which, were, which would have got us back to 0.25, which gets you those nice round numbers. Interest rates typically move in, in 0.25 increments. So that's what they were expecting. From the emergency 0.1%, which is a sort of theoretical floor, up mm. to up to 25 basis points. That's what most people were expecting. And then a small minority were expecting no move because the RBA had been saying for a few months that they wanted <laughs> to, to look at the wages data before they did anything and we hadn't seen the wages data. 
Was that just Phil Lowe's cunning plan, though, to to kind of catch people <laughs> off? Because he was like, he was backed into a corner because he had been saying for mm. for a fair while, we're not going to raise rates till 2024. And then he's mm. like, ah, we've got to raise rates. So maybe I'll just like throw it like a, a curveball with 0.25% to mm. take us to 035 That'll get everybody talking about that number <laughs> instead of the fact that I said we wouldn't be raising rates and we did. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people, you know, talking about how much credibility the RBA has now mm. given given that guidance of the 2024 and it's now, you know, Lot, that's a that's a big miss. It's hard to avoid that. He he said he was embarrassed by by the uh, the fact that yeah. they had to they had to raise rates after he said that they wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Bit awkward fronting the media. So you're, you're on the telly talking about it. Uh, I really oh, I really wanted him. To, I really wanted him to win. I don't know why. Mm. Just because there were so many people saying that it was that he was wrong, and I was like, no, he's sticking to his guns here. I'm, yeah. I'm going to back he's him. He's a in, really likable guy. I, don't, I, I really, he's warm. I, he's a lot of warmth to him. When I used mm. to work at the bank, he, everyone everyone likes him. He's, yeah, <laughs> lovely guy. That's because he made really great promises, like we won't raise rates. <laughs> oh, geez, feels nice. I love. It. He's like he's so generous. He said he's not yeah, going to raise any rates. No, he's a really nice guy. We're going to have Tim Tams at the staff meeting on Wednesday. <laughs> oh, Tim Tams didn't come. Sorry. <laughs> but it's the thought. It's the thought that counts. Yeah. So the most that people were expecting was 0.15. In the end, we got 0.25, which mm. is, is just sort of an odd number. But it's be, being bigger than everyone was expecting. It had that, like, that, sh- that power factor. I was like, whoa. 25 mm. no one, no one saw that and it caused markets to sort of radically realign their their outlook for rates so they they got they got good bang for their buck and they and in the statement they're saying that they had been waiting for wages data but they had been doing a lot of liaison with businesses so the RBA goes out and and chats to businesses all over the country to try and get some real time feel for how the economy is tracking mm. and they said that in that liaison they'd been seeing people had been reporting a lot of wage pressure and so that on top of the stronger than expected inflation data the week before was enough for them to go yeah we're going to we're going to raise rates and raise rates pretty aggressively hang on so that's the, what we got they were, mm. they didn't they didn't make the decision on the result of the inflation data the week before they weren't oh, i think it was a big factor did are you saying they they made the decision to raise rates like within the week before the decision was announced yeah 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 do you know what i mean like they hadn't been planning it for some time <laughs> That feels a bit like shooting from the hip. Oh, no. Should we raise rates this week? Mwah, I don't know. We'll see how we feel tomorrow. <laughs> Tell you what, is, let's, is have morning, like- let's have a coffee in the morning and we'll discuss raising rates. The governor goes to the board meeting and, and makes a recommendation and mm. I think almost always the board goes with it, but the board still needs to vote on it and go, yep, we're with you, Phil. Let's, mm. let's, let's do that. Mm. So it's not a done deal until the board signs off on it. And Glenn Stevens, the previous governor, he used to talk about drafting up two different press releases based on two different decisions and right. taking those and then and still mulling it up over in the day up leading up to the to the decision. Yeah, so yeah, definitely like the the rates, the inflation data, the way that landed would have had a big impact on the decision for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's, it's pretty live. agile in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of companies that couldn't make a decision that quickly. 
<laughs> even, even with like three or four, <laughs> three or four outcomes already predetermined on the table, be like it'll be one of these. We'd get to go live and just be like, ah, still, I don't know, that, I don't think any of them are right. I think we should talk about it some more. Yeah, yeah, get a consultant in, tell us what they reckon. So we saw the rise of twenty five basis points, and now point three five. Could we get the, the next rate? Could we get a higher rate? Could we get fifty basis points like we did in like the US? Went up 50 basis points. Could yeah, that happen the US, next time? The US just did 50 bips. Um, mm. <clears throat> that's the biggest move in 22 years. New Zealand just did it as well in April. They they hiked by 50 basis points. Right. New Zealand's now had 125 work basis points worth of hikes since October. So, ah, yeah, they're, quite they're achievers. On, yeah, yeah, they're on. Well, inflation's at a 30, 32 year high over in New Zealand. So, right. Yeah, RBNZ's got to deal with that. Yeah, so there's, there's this idea of front loading. It's and. This is what people were asking Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, saying like, mm. are we going to see some supersized hikes? Because once you make that decision and go, yep, inflation's hot, we need to get on top of it, and we see the cash rate going back to like 2 2.5%, the question is why wait? Why mm. just slowly ratchet it up? It's a bit like the water's boiling, the gas is on full bore, and you're like, well, yeah, we should turn the gas off. It's like I'm just going to drop it back a notch from 10 to 9 it's mm. like, well, no, take it off the boil, drop it down to two or something. So mm. that's sort of that's sort of what people are saying. Like, well, if you th- if you th- if if inflation's running too hot and it's a problem and and it's and you're well behind the curve, why wait? Why move in these twenty five basis point increments? Why not move in a seventy five? Say, but didn't I say? Pa- I said that mm. two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Did you? So why don't we just increase by like three percent, whatever our target is? Uh, just just do that. Yeah, I think it's just sort you of convention that we just. Sort of- <laughs> I'll have to go and check the tape, but I'm pretty sure you mocked me. <laughs> I mean, you want to see how things adjust. I mean, and the thing right. is, it's a big signal. Like if you mm. like, if you move in 25 basis points, even like you know, as I saying, like the RBA shocked markets by doing 10, 10 basis points more than was expected. That mm. was enough to shock markets and rattle markets. If they came out and dropped 300 basis points, <laughs> everyone would be like, it would, yeah, it'd be kind Well, that's the problem when you say it, when you say it like that. If you just say 3%, mate, it's only, 3%. we'll go 2.5%. 3. 3. <laughs> it's 3. It's nothing. It's 3%. 3 basis points. You come out three. saying 300 basis points, <laughs> we were like, 300? <laughs> yeah, you've lost your mind. <laughs> We're talking about front loading and maybe these bigger rates coming. Um, how much pain is that going to inflict on people, though? Like, do we have any sense of of where yeah. this leaves your average household? I mean, yeah, it was interesting in the sense that it came during an election. Like the polls saying that people people blame the coalition for it. it mm. the, the polls were taking a hit on the back of the rate hikes. So the coalition was out saying, "Well, one, it's out of our control. I don't hold the interest rate lever, mate." <laughs> um, <laughs> it was like global factors, nothing could mm. be done. Um, but mm. two, Josh Frydenberg made the point that households are well positioned to, to be able to handle it. There's three things that should protect households. One is mortgage buffers. So mm-hmm. like when you go to your to the bank, they, they assess you at the rate plus a buffer. So if you're going for a mortgage that's got a 2.5% chalk, chalkboard rate, then they assess you at 5%. So can you service this mortgage at 5%. So theoretically, even people who, who took out a mortgage in the last year should be able to handle 2.5% increase in their mortgage rate. Theoretically. theoretically. Yeah. Theoretically. 
Weren't we also talking not long ago about the number of people that lied on their mortgage application mm. to secure <laughs> to secure a, yeah, a loan? It's substantial. Yeah, U- mm. UBS UBS publishes this study, um, a survey. It's now called the Liar Loan Survey, mm. but, and they do they do it like I don't know every six months or so. Where they they survey a whole bunch of Australians and go, if you took out a mortgage, did you fudge your numbers? Did you? Yeah. you know, and some it's something like forty five percent say yes. They yeah. either like you know exaggerated their income or minimised their expenses. Have so, you ever yeah. done it? No, I never had to when I went got my, mm. got my mortgage. Got money bags over here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I paid. I paid cash. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so right. So we've got yeah. the buffer. So that's so theoretically we should have the buffer. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and it should be you know that should protect most of the the market. So that but it's still going to hurt and people adjust their expenses after they. Get yeah, of course. Mortgage. Yeah, mm. yeah. So that's still going to hurt, but and the, so says that says that there's a mortgage buffer. The second thing is that there, there's households are sitting on a stack of cash. So we talked a, a bit about the war chest that households mm. have accumulated through COVID. Estimates now that that's two hundred and forty billion dollars. So households have two hundred and forty billion dollars more in savings than they did prior yeah. to the pan- pandemic. Which would be fine if that $240 billion was evenly distributed between every mm. household. But I can yeah. hear a lot of people, you know, saying that's all well and good. You say there's $240 billion in this war chest. Well, mm. where's the keys to the war chest? Because I haven't got it. Like, yeah. you know, like a lot of people did put savings away, but, you know, some of us might have gone and bought a new TV, a new kitchen and a jet ski. So... <laughs> When, when the good times were here. I thought the good times were here. I thought they were here to stay and any inflation and rates were going to be transitory and, I, you know, yeah, jet skis yeah. were just going up in price and so you just, some people had to have one. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people would get, get I, I get pretty annoyed when you hear, oh, Australians have got, you know, heaps of savings, we can weather this storm. That's not mm. true. That's not true for a lot of people. And I think no. I, I read something, I don't know where it was, that, People with the most savings were the top earners, you know. So mm. the the lower income people and and lower earners yeah. weren't sitting on this this war chest of savings yeah. that people like to think we've all got. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And I th- and I think a lot of the run up in those savings was a sort of a defensive posture against COVID and not and the, all the uncertainty. Like I think mm. a lot of people went like, oh, the the outlook looks really weird. I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to build up a bunch of savings. Yeah. It wasn't the idea that you, that you know that was meant to sort of see you through a rainy day. It's not wasn't idea that that was going to see you through rate hikes. No, nah, or they were saving we for a house, trying to get a deposit together yeah. to, to buy a house, and um, now interest rates have gone up, so they're going to mm. need more, and inflation's yeah. gone up, which means if you did manage to save ten thousand, well, you've actually only got nine and a half thousand now because you've yeah. lost five percent on inflation. Yeah, and so, rents, have, rents have gone up. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a brutal time to be trying to save for a house. So what was the third one? You mentioned <laughs> well, the buffer, yeah. the savings, and what's the third one? The other one is the serviceability burden is is at a historic low. So if you look at uh, mortgage repayments as a percent of disposable income, and again, these are average numbers, so there's going to be a lot of variation across the income mm. spectrum, but in on the average, if you look at mortgage repayments as a dis- percent of disposable income, that's kind of about as low as it's ever been. So it's down to about 4.4% now. Right. That's quite a low number. So it was up around 10% just prior to the GFC. Yeah, okay. So your representative household then should theoretically be able to 
cover more mortgage repayments because mortgage payments as a as a share of their disposable income is at a, at a record low. So mm. theoretically, they should be able to handle it. So these these are the things anyway. These are the things that economists are pointing to and saying like it shouldn't shouldn't be too hectic on households. Mm. Even even like a substantial rise, like if we get to a terminal rate of you know ANZ saying three percent, that's the that's the highest estimate that I've seen, um, which points to mortgage rates of five six percent. That should be okay. Is sort of what mm. economists are saying. Because we still have. I mean, the flip side to all of that is we've still got historically ridiculously low interest rates. You know, mm-hmm. even now with the point, the 25 basis points rise, it's still still crazy low compared, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, you hear your parents, you know, and God, don't they love to tell you, paying 17% or something on mm-hmm. their mortgage. The other, mm-hmm. I read an interesting stat too, that that was at the time of 17% mortgages, the average house cost 2.5 times their household income. Mm-hmm. So that's like, it's pretty, you know. You just about chuck a chuck a house on the credit card and pay your seventeen percent mortgage at that at that rate. So well, and and you had wages growing, like wages probably growing around ten percent. So mm. that means like the value, the debt is falling relative to your income because your income's rising so quickly. So after yeah. a few years of that, your your debt's sort of like almost negligible because your yeah your, your income's gone up. So yeah, like a high inflationary environment does come with high interest rates, but it has these other factors as well, like. Fast mm. wage growth. I had a look. The average household at the moment, the average household earns one hundred and sixteen thousand dollars per year. So mm-hmm. if you if you go by that two and a half times, so in our parents' era, you're looking at a loan of or a purchase price for a house on average of two hundred and ninety thousand. You know, mm. in today's money. Yeah, so right. you can still get a house for two hundred ninety thousand. It just depends on whether or not you're prepared to refer to your caravan as a house or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, yeah, it doesn't get you much these days. All right, let's take a really short break here, get a word from this week's sponsors. On the other side of the break, we take a look at Labor's shiny new housing policy and answer some of your listener questions. Stick around. You're on Comedian versus Economist. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. You're on Comedian versus Economist. You can, of course, send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. CVE at equitymates.com or via the website, equitymates.com forward slash CVE. You can also get us on Instagram and Facebook at CVE Podcast. Thomas, Labor has been out in the last week announcing their new housing policy. You can't go to an election without some sort of housing sweetener deal, it would seem. Mm. What have they got for us? Yeah, they've got a, they've got a shared equity scheme. Um, and probably the important thing to note here is that so the budget, the recent budget announced an extension of the low deposit scheme. Labor's proposal doesn't isn't a contradiction to that. It's it's in a, in, a, in addition to that. So it's on top right. of what's already there. It's not so it's not sort of such a competitive measure in that sense. But the the coalition the government doesn't have this proposal there so it's it's unique to labor hmm. so it's a shared equity scheme so basically if you can come up with a 5% deposit and you go jump through the hoops and become part of this scheme 
the government will then tip in 30% for an existing house or 40% for a new house. And then you go to a registered lender and you get a mortgage for the remaining 65% or whatever it is. Mm. So it's a ship, but it's shared equity. So the government then has an interest in your property. And then when you sell it, they get a cut of the profits if you sell it mm. for a profit relative to their stake. And Anthony Albanese can sleep in your study if <laughs> if he needs to. Yeah. Yeah, if he's in town for the week. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So they own, essentially the government owns a chunk of your house. Yeah, 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 you can think of it like that. Yeah. Which which then reduces the the cost that it, the cost to buy the house because they mm. they're buying part of it reduces your interest repayments. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sounds yeah, pretty so good. Yeah, you you you're getting a mortgage for like 65% of mm. the property. So that's a that's a very low LVR. That's obviously a lot less than if you're, you know, paying the ser- servicing a 95% mortgage. Mm. Um, so it costs you a lot less in servicing. You've got to come up with less for a deposit. And, you know, we're talking about substantial sums of money. The price cap in Sydney is $950,000. So 30% Whoa. of that's three hundred grand. Mm. So people are potentially going to the market with three hundred grand from the government to help them buy a house, which they only have to pay back once they sell. Yeah, right. So yeah. why, wouldn't, why wouldn't everyone just go and do this? Well, there's only 10,000 places in the right. first round. It might okay. get extended, but for now it's 10,000 places. There's also income caps on it. So you've got to be earning less than $90,000 as an individual or $120,000 as a, as a couple. Right. But that's also not very restrictive. Like you talked about the average income being 116 or th- something. That's the average, which is distorted by high income earners. The yep. median, like like where if you, if you cut the spectrum in half, that's down around 82,000 or something like that. I have to check the numbers exactly, but it's around that. So right. the, like in my mind, you, about half the market should be, half the people in Australia should be eligible for yeah, right. at, on, on my understanding of the numbers. I did read one of the, one of the criticisms though is that as soon as you start earning over the 90,000, you have to go and... You have to buy out the government's share of your house, hmm. which that's going to put people in a bit of a tricky position, isn't it? Like, I mean, you know, just because you, if you if you get into the scheme on a salary of eighty five thousand, mm. then you get a pay rise of five grand a year, which is mm. not unheard mm. of. Then yeah. all of a sudden you've got to you can find another three hundred thousand dollars. This was the key line of the, the argument the coalition took up with it. I mean, even though Scott Morrison proposed a similar scheme or said he was in favour of a similar scheme back in 2007. They mm. said that, you know, Labor's going to be sticking a for sale sign up in your yard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is a beautifully graphic image. It was like open curtains in the morning and there's Anthony Albanese banging a sign into your <laughs> lawn. There's, there's a number of these shared equity schemes on a state basis. I think Victoria, SA and WA have, have one. And... Mm. There's, there's sort of a buffer. So I, I, I tried digging into this and it wasn't clear, but I think I heard the someone say that in Victoria... That <laughs> sure isn't clear. <laughs> I tried digging into this. It wasn't clear, but I think I heard someone say... <laughs> go on, Thomas, what did, that, what did someone say about something you didn't hear about? Yeah, so something like 90,000 to qualify, but then if your income goes above 90,000, you don't have to buy the government out until your income gets up to like 130,000 or something like that. Right. So it's not, it's not, it doesn't trigger immediately as soon as you jump over that cap. You've got yeah, some okay. time to, 
to buy it out. And the idea, I think, with that is if it goes over 130000 or some sort of mark like that, mm. then you're able to get a loan for the full amount. Yeah. You could now service the full loan. You don't actually need the government. So there's, the, but yeah, the idea that you, you know, you get a, a $2,000 a year pay rise and suddenly you've got to buy the government out. I don't, <laughs> is not how this scheme works. And it's a bit disingenuous to say that. You can't pass it on to your kids either. That was the other thing. So, so I think the coalition were running that line too. Like you can't mm. as a, um, if you've bought a property and then you want to, um, pass the house on to your kids, if they earn more than the 90,000, they can't take it on either. Yeah. Well, they've so, just, no, they've just got to buy the government out. Yeah, which is which is which is perfectly reasonable. Like, yeah. if you, you you know, you're passing on your kids and they're high income earners. Well, they should <laughs> buy the government out. Like, <laughs> well, I'm really I'm really keen on the free money element of this <laughs> of this scheme. I'm really trying to avoid the reaching the point where I have to pay out the government. <laughs> Um, yeah. But you know what it does? The other, the other feature, which I don't, haven't seen people talk about so much, but if you do renovations on your house and improve the value of your house, mm. the government isn't entitled to that, to, oh. to a share of that. So somehow, like if you, you know, add a, add a granny flat or something and mm. increase the value of the property, you get you keep that. That's, it's, so it's not just on the final sales price, but it's on the unimproved sales price. So there's some, right. I don't know how that's calculated, but that's that's sort of the intention. Of it. <laughs> it's great. So you're like, hey, government, I need I need you to help me out here. I need to buy a house. And you buy a house, and the first thing you do is build a, an extension off the back, three rooms, pool table. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. Uh, yeah. I did also read you can't uh, own any other land or property. Yeah, yeah. So it's for first home buyers. First which home is what it should Well, be. it doesn't say first home buyers. Oh, no, that's it true. It just not, says you can't own any other no, land mm, or property. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm just thinking mm. like if Anna and I get divorced, then it mm. frees me up to buy another property with the government's help. Actually, it frees oh. her up. Um, you, you're keeping the house, are you? <laughs> big of you. <laughs> No, it would, it, it'd be an arrangement. It'd be a scheme. Yeah. It'd be yeah. a. We're just, I'm just looking for loopholes here, Tom. But they're, they're saying that these shared equity schemes. So WA runs one, and they have they mm. have a low deposit scheme and a shared equity scheme. And what they 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 say is that the low deposit scheme is popular with young people, and the shared right. equity scheme is popular with older people, because so like women over 55, that's the fastest growing rate of homelessness in Australia. Yeah. A lot of people like come out of a divorce and they don't have a property and they're renting on a low income and they're at a later stage of life. It's very hard mm. to get into the market. So yeah, a shared right. equity scheme helps them because it brings down the amount they've got to get in, in to qualify for. Whereas you can have like a, someone, a young person who could be earning quite a good wage, but because they haven't built up the deposit, they're not mm. able to get into the property market. So you give them help with the deposit that enables them to get in, whereas an older person, they really need help with equity to get in. And that's, yeah, right. what, that's what the, the West Australian case is showing us. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. But at the end of the day, it's 10,000 10, places, so it's not going to mm. have a massive move on the market. And and it's interesting. the other thing interesting about it is everyone loves it. 
So this isn't a contentious policy. So they like housing advocate groups, they like it because it's helping out low-income people. The building industry likes it because it's money for houses. The property investors like it because it's probably going to push prices up at the margin. So like every everyone wins. So it's like it's it's kind of an easy policy in that sense. There's no you don't there's no losers that need to be bought out. Like so late labor with with it, you know, went hard on negative gearing at the last election. That created mm. was potentially going to create some losers and so people campaigned really hard against them on it. This one everyone's like apart from the coalition, everyone's like, "Yeah, great. We love it." Is it a new it. thing then? Like why haven't we done it before? Well, we we do. There's state-based programs that are doing it. Oh, yeah. this is just the first federal this one. Is first federal one. Yeah. Yeah. Both parties seem hell-bent on property and getting people into property. And I, I don't know, we talked last week about whether that was a bit of a sucker punch for, you know, people coming into mm. property during a high interest environment or a mm. rising rates environment anyway. So yeah, it just seems like there's these are some pretty there's, there's always something about housing and getting people into houses and and building more houses. And won't that just is that one of the reasons why they limit it to 10,000 places not because of the cost of the scheme but just because they don't want it to don't want to create this surge in demand or mm. distort the market at all? Yeah, that's that's probably right. I mean, governments tend to sort of fudge around with housing. Like it's 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 always an intense issue because on one hand, if you if you're housing insecure, if you're renting for example or you're a low-income person trying to get a house, it creates mm. massive problems in your life like yeah, you know, rent, renting can be a real drag. So it's a real pain point for a lot of people, for parents with watching their kids with it. It's so it's it's a very emotive, powerful issue. If you got that on one hand, on the on the other hand, for most Australians, the majority of their wealth is tied up in the house. So what happens to house prices has a big impact on their financial situation. So it's mm. this, so it's a hot button topic on whichever way you look at it, and there's a desire that the government does something about it. So, the, so this this bind that the, the people want the government to do something to make houses affordable, they want, the, but they don't want houses to be cheaper. Mm. So it's this, this ridiculous situation. It's like yeah, I want people to have cheap access to cheap houses, but I don't want my house to be worth less. Yeah, right. That's the bind that the government's trying to operate in and trying to come up with policies that meet that, those that impossible balance. Of, so you have these sort of piecemeal demand side policies aimed at particular segments like low income earners or, or older Australians or whatever it is to try to help them get into the market, even though when you're adding demand like through money into a supply constrained market, you're going to push up prices. So this this policy will push up prices at the margin. Mm. Which is goes against the whole agenda of an affordability policy, but no one wants to see prices fall, so that's the best you're going to get. Keep everyone happy. That's mm. the that's the key to success. That's democracy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Thomas, I wanted to finish today with a couple of listener questions that have come through. We've been sitting on these for a little while because they're pretty big questions, so um, thanks for your patience if you've uh, been writing in, waiting to hear your, hear your question on the show. Brenton sent us an email, cve at equitymates.com. Uh, it says, hey, guys, great podcast. Had a mate who was talking to me about what he thinks might be a big story over the next few years, financial repression, which to me sounded like an exit plan for a happy spending governments, but I have no idea. Thomas, have you ever come across the term financial repression before? Uh, look, no, I haven't. I, this, hmm. this, yeah, this was new to me. I, haven't, I have never come across this term. I Googled it. I did some... <laughs> 
this is a research. Good. Uh, and I still don't know what it is, funnily enough. <laughs> All right, Brenton. Well, hopefully that's answered your question. <laughs> Moving on to... <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, so it seems to have some sort of connection to some economist publishing a paper at some point. Mm. So you, you look at the the kind of things that they're, they're talking about, like, I don't know, it seemed to be a grab bag of policy measures, like the idea that somehow the government's going to draw leech money out of the private sector through a, a range of policies like price caps and interest rate caps and trade restrictions and things like this mm. it seemed to be talking about stuff that one i didn't i didn't get the connection with those methods to the agenda of of bolstering government finances through and, and how that leeches money from the private sector it wasn't obvious to me from that from that quick search so i didn't quite get it but two it's just stuff that talking about price controls or rent controls or something like that it's just in the australian political economy is just so far from any of those kind of measures it's, it's sort of really emerging market kind of stuff that seems to right. be talking about so you'd, you'd need the you'd need the government controlling the banks controlling all the yeah 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 it, it, it's 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 a pretty radically different economy so the one that the with those measures in place, we're talking about a pretty radically different economy to what Australia's got right now. Mm. A pretty radically different political economy. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, from what I can understand, which is not a lot. Um, I don't. Welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. Maybe it's a thing. I haven't heard mm. anyone talking about it. No, like it's not a term that I've ever come across, and I read pretty widely. Yeah, um, I've never come across it. So. Maybe, right. maybe it's that, maybe it's a, a for a concept like some of it sounded a bit like austerity. Mm. Some of the measures that the IMF might impose on a Sri Lanka or a Greece or something in a debt crisis to get their debt under control, but I don't know price price interest rate caps. I don't even know how that works. Price controls, trade. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's not it's not All clear right. to me how the how the whole bag hangs together. So, yeah, if anyone can help us out with financial repression, send us through an email, uh, cve at equitymates.com. Uh, all right, we'll leave that one there, Thomas. Another question from David and uh, a fairly long question, so I'll just try and summarise this for you, David. I, I hope I get this, um, the gist of it. Um, what would the effect of limiting negative gearing be on the property market? Say if you could only... Uh, if you could only buy one property and use negative gearing on that property. So David had quite a, a sort of a, a long question uh, on negative gearing and pros and cons. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it boils down to kind of limiting the amount that people can can do negative gearing. Yeah, I mean it would it would shift the market if you, lif- if you limited. I mean negative gearing is kind of interesting because like people talk about it being like mum and dad investors Mm. The data doesn't really suggest say that that's true. It is true that some mum and dad investors get in there, but negative gearing seems to be mostly used as a tax dodge by the quite rich, right? Um, like the top twenty percent of income earners. That seems to be what the data suggests, particularly with the how it ties into the capital gains tax discount. So that's what the sort of data suggests, and that and that sort of makes sense to a degree, like. Negative gearing 
is uh, uh, it hamstrings your ability to build a portfolio of properties. Like if you wanted to be a, po- a property investor, a serious property investor, but investor with multiple properties, hmm. negative gearing hamstrings that ability because each property you own is costing you money. And so, and that eats into your serviceability. So at some point the bank's just going to go, whoa, you've got like three negatively geared properties. If you lose your income, you, you've got a, you know, your expense mm. bill is like a hundred grand. We're not lending you any more money. Negative gearing is where your uh, repayments on a property outweigh the income, the rental income from the property. Yeah, is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So you're essentially running at running at a loss, running at an loss, investment yeah. property at a loss, and then your you assets, claim it all back yeah, on loss. tax or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can offset that loss against your personal income, your wage and salary income. Right. That's what that's what negative gearing allows you to do. With the way okay. So if we limited people to just so you're saying it's mostly the big big end of town that's buying investment properties using negative gearing. So if we mm. limited those those buyers to one, uh, we said you can only have negative mm. gearing on one of those properties, mm. would that mm. stop them buying the other ones, do you think? And would that put more properties back into the marketplace? Uh, I mean, it definitely it'd have to at the margin, right? Like it, it, mm. it discourages that form of, of tax minimization strategy it makes that less effective so yeah at the margin it has to how big an impact it is is a bit hard to know and Mm. i suspect it's kind of substantial but uh, there's sort of no real way to know because it's quite Mm. opaque that like the way people use negative gearing and and sort of the numbers around it or what other strategies they might use I mean, a lot of people who, you know, you start out, you know, you know, the other, the other factor is you're looking at a dynamic market. So it's a bit hard to sort of pull out the effect. So because property prices are going out, you might buy a pro uh, and rents are going up. You might buy a property that's negatively geared in the first couple of years, but then as rent, as rents go up and Mm. as interest rates come down, you then have a positively geared investment property. But then there's things you can do by like, you can change the amount of leverage in the loan to, that that determines whether a property is negatively or positively geared. Do you know right. what I mean? So you're yeah, inter- yeah. Cause, cause you're talking about your, your interest payments. So you just like, you pull out all the equity you've got in the property, your interest payments go up and now it's negatively geared again. So it's quite hard to tell one way or the other. And yeah. And I haven't really seen yeah The kind of, it's, it's a good question. I mean, def, definitely at the margin, it must it must mm. discourage that kind of activity, which might mean people sell investment properties, which then they come onto the market and make them available to, to owner-occupiers. Potentially that's true. It must be true at the margin. But how big, of, big an effect it is, mm. I haven't, it's really hard to say. Hard really to hard say. Because, yeah, I mean, he also made the point about, you know, would it have an effect on equity markets as people that might have bought more investment properties go, you know what, I'm not going to buy those, I'll, I'll put it into, this, into the share market instead. Um, mm. You know, he asked about whether it would have any impact on banks and the number of loans that, you know, they're writing so they're going to, you know, there'd be less less loans on the, on the mm. bank's book. I, I don't know. I guess it all comes down to whether or not, yeah, yeah whether you can, you can quantify the, the number of negatively yeah. geared investment loans there are flying around yeah i mean you can you can do that you can do that but 
Yeah. But, but that's like, <laughs> we but read one article on <laughs> negative gearing and that's all we got. Yeah. But it's also but also the thing like negative gearing is, is partnered with capital gains tax. So it's like you, you pay the cost up front, you lose money, you get some of that back and then you get a discount when you sell and you make a gain at the on the other side. Mm. So they kind of work hand in hand is sort of how the the tax minimization element of it works. Right. But then like what's the motivation? Like you're buying property, property's going up in Australia, it's going up, you know, keeps going up 10, 15% a year. You're kind of happy to own it when it's doing that. You know, it's yeah. nice that it helps minimise your tax and reduce your taxable income, but you might just be happy to own it anyway. So mm. whether it trigger, triggers people to sell or not, it's, it's, I don't think there's any real way to know. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you, David and Brenton, for your emails. Really appreciate it. You can get in touch with us. Uh, email cve at equitymates.com or via the website equitymates.com forward slash cve or, of course, Instagram and Facebook at CVE Podcast. Hey, congrats to you if you made it this far. You obviously like the show. It would be really fantastic if you could rate our show wherever you listen to your podcast. Give it a five stars if you think that way uh, or anything above three would be much appreciated. Anything less than that, probably prefer you keep it to yourself. Uh, don't forget, check out all the other great podcasts from Equity Mates Media. Get Started Investing, Equity Mates Investing Podcast, You're in Good Company, Talk Money to Me, Crypto Curious, The Dive. And don't forget, FinFest happening October 22nd. Head to equitymates.com forward slash FinFest for more information. Thank you very much for tuning into Comedian versus Economist. That does us for this week. We will talk to you again next time. Bye for now. Comedian vs. Economist is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Comedian vs. Economist are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Comedian vs Economist acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.